we need Julian Assange. And one thing I want to say to you today is, it is not only that he is the victim of torture, it is not only that his life is at stake, it is not only that we want to save him from a dreadful injustice, we also want to save him because the world needs Julian Assange as a symbol and fighter for liberty. Okay, that was Anton Karras from The Third Man, the music. And up front was former UK ambassador to um, Uzbekistan, Craig Murray, uh, a longtime diplomat and one of the most uh, spirited and eloquent uh, defenders of Julian Assange uh, and has been for some time. He's really – go to craigmurray.com.uk or vice versa and uh, – Check out his website because he's got stuff out every single day pertinent, not only to Assange's case, but everything uh, UK, Scotland, and internationally. He's really one of the most brilliant individuals I have ever met in my life. And he's got a great book out called Secunder Burns, which is a must read. Um, this is uh, – I am Randy Credico. This is um, Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom. This is our third episode this year. Here at the wonderful, beautiful, uh, plush studios on um, 6th Street, New York City, called nycpodcastings.com. nycpodcasting.com. Go to that website, and uh, and if you want to do a podcast, this is the place to do it because uh, they really treat you well. And the engineers, especially my engineer, I know that Frank is is unbelievable. He has saved uh, the day the other day when we had a, a few technical problems. Uh, because of the uh, the internet went down for the whole block, and uh, Frank was able to make it look like it never happened. So that's nycpodcasting.com. Uh, if you're looking to do a uh, podcast, this is the place to go. And uh, this is, like I said, Assange Countdown to Freedom uh, in collaboration with Covert Action Magazine and uh, with uh, – in association with our friends uh, at uh, Anonymous Scandinavia and, of course, Courage Foundation, which is the foremost uh, outfit out there uh, in support of Julian Assange. Uh, it's really a great uh, you know, organization, and uh, you can find them at uh, Courage Foundation and Courage Found uh, at Twitter. Uh, so that is uh, that is that uh, this uh, this uh, this week earlier yesterday, uh, Mr. Assange appeared in court, and you know um, he looked a lot better. But uh, once again, he is um, facing so many legal obstacles. He has for the last, I would say, since the very beginning, and it all began with the um, Swedish charges, uh, not even charges, allegations. Uh, you know, this way back in uh, November 2000, 
2010, just a week and a half after the publication of the war logs, they, they revived as something that uh, the previous prosecutors said, there's nothing here, and they tossed it out. And But for some reason, coincidentally, uh, his uh, legal problems, his odyssey uh, kicked off right about that time, and it's been a struggle ever since. Um, so he was in magistrate's courtroom uh, on Monday and uh, just complaining about not being able to spend time with his lawyers. He can't spend time with his lawyers. He's in one of these medieval prisons. Uh, it's like a dungeon and uh, no air. You know, he's, it's, he's subjected to real uh, human rights violations inside this prison. And uh, you don't expect that from a, a country that uh, prides itself as being a, you know, one of the great uh, democracies on the planet. So um, we'll get into that a little later. We have a very special guest uh, today. Uh, we're going to talk about Sweden. I know I don't like to open up the sore of Sweden, but I, it, it has to be it has to be looked at uh, because it it really is responsible for the jam that Mr. Assange is in today on so many levels. Uh, it had, you know it, the stink of this bogus allegation that was spread way back in 2010. Uh, continues to haunt him today, undermining natural support. They put it out there. And when these rumors get out there, these lies get out there, they're very difficult to shake off. And he has definitely been a uh, victim of smear and innuendo. And uh, it uh, is really uh, disgraceful and reprehensible. Um, uh, you know, I spoke to him. Uh, the second time I interviewed him was April 11th. Uh, 2017, and it was about Sweden and Sweden's uh, very shady past and connection with uh, with the U.S. and uh, who runs that country. Uh, but I asked them in that interview, "Why him? What? What? Why are they going after him?" And so uh, this is just a, a little a pastiche from that interview where he explains why. This is from. April 11, 2017. But WikiLeaks uh, started about a decade ago, uh, and we publish uh, authentic materials, official materials from all around the world. Um, the U.S. produces an unusual number of them, uh, so we tend to publish more from the U.S. than from other countries. Uh, and that's easily understandable when you realize that the U.S., has the most amount of money going into uh, the secret state. So there's more than 5 million people in the United States with security clearances, uh, well over uh, 1.3 million with top secret security clearances. So that effectively is a state within a state. And then the cultural values expressed uh, in the United States, it's its own a self-story uh, has some honorable cultural traditions, and those come, come in conflict with the reality of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, so the tension between the two uh, produces incentives for whistleblowers and, and dissidents to emerge. Then simply the, the scale of it uh, means that quite a number of them do emerge. Um, and... So a grand jury was started in 2010 um, 
the US government internally calls a whole of government investigation, criminal and intelligence investigation against me and other people in WikiLeaks. Uh, one of our alleged sources, uh, Chelsea Manning, was sentenced to 35 years in prison. Uh, he was uh, severely abused uh, in 2011, uh, 2012. UN Special Rapporteur on Torture formally found that he had been subject to cruel and inhumane uh, treatment. Uh, that grand jury uh, continues on in, in my case. Uh, and the U.S. government has just announced that it has expanded it to also include our recent CIA uh, publications. It's run by the National Security Division of the DOJ and by the Criminal uh, Division of the DOJ. It's a, it's a big thing. It, it's spread agents all over the world, uh, chartered private jets to Iceland, pulled people back to be secretly interrogated, coercively forced people uh, to testify. Um, and it's, it's a, you know, there's an extensive series of legal maneuvers by my lawyers uh, and the lawyers of uh, Chelsea Manning and also some NGOs in the United States to, to try and check uh, that ongoing process. And in response to that, uh, the government of Ecuador gave me political asylum in 2012, and there's a, a variety of complications of other legal processes uh, and I've been physically in the embassy since that point in time. Uh, let, me, let me just kind of conclude with the most recent developments. On the 5th of February 2016, the UN announced its formal finding. Uh, I sued the states of the UK and Sweden uh, at the United Nations, and uh, I won, uh, and it was ruled that I should be released immediately and compensated. Uh, the UK then appealed uh, that ruling uh, and it lost on the 11th of November. Well, there you go. That was uh, Julian Assange from April 11, 2017. Um, in my old show, in the very, the very first Assange Countdown to Freedom, uh, John Pilger was also on that show, and we had him on last week, and that is right now on the uh, website, covertactionmagazine.com. Uh, uh, and so uh, that's where he was then. He got that small victory, uh, but very few uh, legal hurdles has he been able to eclipse uh, since then. In fact, every hurdle in the world has been tossed in front of him. Um, a couple of bright spots, and that is uh, the case of uh, Stefania Marizzi um, and her um, attempts to access files uh, from uh, the uh, Metropolitan Police and of London and Scotland Yard and uh, from the uh, Crown Prosecutor Services. We'll get into that with our next guest. Our next guest is going to be, after this music, uh, will be um, a, really someone that I am so impressed with. I, I got to see her in action uh, in 2017 uh, when Stefania finally got into a courtroom on the lower tier, I believe, and was um, represented by this barrister by the name of Estelle Dahon. And she was, I was like amazed, really, really amazed at, at, uh, 
at her um, courtroom uh, abilities. It's a, you know, I, I've been in courtrooms a lot in this country over the last 30, 40 years as a defendant a few times, but also just witnessing some great um, legal proceedings. And I have not seen uh, much better than what I saw uh, with, with Estelle uh, in 2000. It's intimidating that I'm going to be interviewing her. We have a lot to talk about, um, and we will do that in, um, right after this music, which she chose, and she has great taste in music on top of it. This is uh, Nina Simone. Ain't got no home, ain't got no shoes, ain't got no money, ain't got no class, ain't got no skirts. Ain't got no sweaters, ain't got no perfume, ain't got no love, ain't got no faith. I ain't got no culture, ain't got no mother, ain't got no father, ain't got no brother, ain't got no children, ain't got no aunts, ain't got no uncles. Ain't got no love, ain't got no mind. I ain't got no country, ain't got no schooling, ain't got no friends, ain't got no nothing. Simone, and I am such a big fan of Nina Simone. And um, Stefani Marizzi uh, says this about uh, our only guest today, our one and only guest, because I can't follow this. Uh, Stefani Marizzi, the great uh, indefatigable uh, investigative journalist for La Repubblica, said about uh, Miss Dehon. I wish all journalists litigating in the public interest have Estelle. And Estelle, we uh, gave you a um, we gave you a, a little intro uh, prior to that music there. So, welcome to the show, Randy. Thank you very much. It's uh, a pleasure to be talking with you again. Well, you know, the th yes, the last time I saw you was in that courtroom. Uh, November 10th or 11th, 2017. And you did, I guess we did interview uh, on KPFA with Dennis a couple of times. Uh, and I don't know where to start. The, you know, there's so much I want to ask you today. So if I'm a little discursive, please bear with me. Um, first of all, you are at Cornerstone Barristers in London and you specialize in information law and uh, environmental law. And uh, then it just... I know because I told you last night that I've seen witness for the prosecution a dozen times, uh, and so I know what a difference between a barrister and a solicitor is. So for the people in this country, could you just give us a definition of the two? 
sure. Uh, it, it is a bit of an odd system uh, in that for uh, a number of reasons, a long, long time ago, um, it was decided that there are some people who should specialize in appearing in court and that they should be barristers and that that should be separate from the people who focus on getting the paperwork together and starting out litigation and that those are solicitors. But uh, recently in the United Kingdom, uh, some steps have been taken to um, bring the two sides of the legal profession together. So sometimes a solicitor might appear in court and sometimes barristers don't. But on the whole, that's the main difference between the two. I see. But uh, you both have the same type of schooling, though, right? I mean, you have to... Uh... You have to you have to have a certain amount of uh, education to become both, right? About the same amount. Yeah, that's correct. I that's see. absolutely right. And so, in terms of university, in terms of qualifications, it's pretty much the same. But at the very end, when we do our practical vocational training, the two split off, and barristers do training that focuses on advocacy and focuses on in-depth legal research, and solicitors do different training. And so you practice law, you practice law in uh, the UK, but does that give you the right to practice law in uh, the entire UK, uh, in Scotland and Northern Ireland? Are you restricted to just uh, the UK? I mean, just so to... So I'm restricted to England and Wales. Yes. Um, there's a different and separate legal system in Scotland, a completely separate legal system. Uh, the, for some purposes, for example, things like immigration or defense or foreign policy, the Westminster Parliament le legislates for the whole of the UK. But on many other things, including, including environment, including information law, Scotland has its own system and its own laws and has had for a very long time indeed. And if I wanted to practice in Scotland, I'd have to be qualified there. Ice. For Northern Ireland, it's a bit easier in that the same law applies in Northern Ireland, but there's a separate process for me to be called to the bar in Northern Ireland in order to appear. I see. So if this case uh, that we're going to talk about in a few minutes um, had taken place in Scotland, if uh, Scotland had uh, arrested Julian Assange, uh, you wouldn't necessarily be able to represent uh, your plaintiff here, um, Stefani Morizzi. Somebody else would, or would you have to apply for that? So I could apply to be a member, um, to, to be able to appear in Scotland, but it would be much more difficult for me. Uh, what would have happened likely is that Stefania would have gone to somebody who already has rights of appearance um, in Scotland. Um, for example, one of my colleagues, James Findlay QC, um, because he's um, Scottish and did his uh, legal training in Scotland, can appear in both jurisdictions. I would have been able to help, but I would not have been able to litigate the case in the same way. I'm, you know... Uh where do you think you have a better shot in the legal system, uh, in, in England or in Scotland? What, what country is more favorable legally uh, to a defendant? Mm. So from an information perspective, the jurisdictions are pretty similar. The laws are pretty much the same. 
Uh, and I think you've, you've probably got an equal chance in both jurisdictions. Um, in some litigation uh, that has recently uh, been happening in the United Kingdom, for example, when there was a challenge to the decision by the uh, Prime Minister to shut down Parliament, litigation took place in Scotland and in England, and the Scottish litigation was more successful. And some people take from that that the Scottish courts are more likely to find against the government, but I'm not necessarily sure that's a general trend. I see. Now, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by the Scottish system. Be, you know, it, this goes way back to Article 19 of the Treaty of Union, uh, where Scotland was accorded its own uh, legal system or its past legal system. And I'm going to bring up Lord Mansfield, uh, William uh, William Murray, Lord Mansfield, who seemed to be a, a very progressive a jurist, who later on brought in some of the Scottish uh, traditions in law, common law, uh, into the um, the British, the English system. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So Scotland, for a very long time, um, has had its own significant independent position in relation to its legal system. And there's a very interesting interaction and has been for a long time between the two jurisdictions where Scottish cases can influence um, cases in England and Wales and cases in England and Wales can influence cases in Scotland. Um, it's, it, I think it's a key part of the Scottish psyche that they have their own legal traditions going back a long way and that they exercise those traditions very proudly. I see. And so what would happen uh, if Brexit were to go through? How would that, uh, what kind, and then Scott, and Scotland like dis disappears and, and has their, uh, they break away. What would that do uh, with these legally uh, between Scotland and, and England? You know. Well, at the moment, um, once the United Kingdom leaves the European Union on the 31st of January, so very imminently, uh, that means that Scotland uh, and England, Wales and Northern Ireland all leave. Um, it's feasible that um, following a Scottish independence referendum that Scotland might um, assert its independence, leave the Union then its legal system would be completely separate from that of the United Kingdom. The Parliament in Westminster would have no lawmaking function left for Scotland, and Scotland would have to reapply to join the European Union. That sounds very tempting. Now, what would that do? You're on the European uh, Commission multi-stakeholder expert group on the GDPR. Uh, would that affect that? Would you have to? That's leave? a mouthful, isn't it? I, I, listen, I, that's too much for me to say. I'm, I'm, look, I'm, I'm using an acronym here because I, there's no way I could get those four letters out. Why don't you just tell me what it means? <laughs> just the sure. G, GDPR. Um, your, 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 what yeah. your experience there? A and would it affect you if Brexit goes into effect? Your, your position on this commission. Mm. Mm. So. The the GDPR is, I think, well known to many in the United States. It's the general law to do with data protection across the whole of the European Union. And it's had quite a strong influence in other areas of the world, including the U.S., in terms of uh, the way that privacy um, is uh, being formulated and the way that personal information is protected. And I'm on this body, which is a panel of experts, 
uh, and we are advising the European Commission on the GDPR and on how that legislation is being uh, complied with across Europe. And I was appointed to that body uh, a couple of years ago uh, after a competitive process, but I was appointed as an individual legal expert because of my um, history of working with um, data protection and privacy in the United Kingdom um, and in a couple of other countries. And so interestingly for me, uh, because I'm on as an individual uh, legal expert, there's no nationality requirement for my participation. So the European, so the United Kingdom will leave the EU, but I will still be on the multi-stakeholder expert group. Oh. Um, some of my other colleagues, some of my other colleagues who are on the group in a representative capacity, for example, we have universities who are represented on the group. That does have a nationality requirement. They do have to represent institutions in the European Union, and so they've had to step down. I see. I see. Well, that is. I'm glad you get to stay there because um, you're you're you know you're good. You're real good, and you've uh, accomplished a lot. And you know, I just before we get into the Stefania and the whole uh, Swedish uh, saga, I just want to um, mm-hmm. uh, talk about this. Um, other part, the environmental law, the um, the environmental and planning. So you are envir- mm. you're, you're an expert on environmental and planning. So what is that? I know the environmental part, but the planning part. Put those two together and explain to our American audience, U.S. audience, what that means. Mm. So yes, a U.S. audience will be very familiar with environmental protections, and that's um, a big area of my practice. Uh, Very much less familiar is the idea of planning law. There's a sort of equivalent in the U.S. in relation to zoning, but it's very different in the U.K. So what happened was in the mid-1900s, essentially the United Kingdom nationalized all of the land and said, if you want to do pretty much anything, if you want to build something, if you want to develop the land, if you want to mine the land, if you want to exploit the land, you have to apply um, to the authorities for permission to do that. And so a whole system of planning and of policy around that developed. And you can see how that dovetails with environmental protections. And so that's, those are the two elements of that part of my practice. Well, you've become quite a legal advocate against uh, fracking. Is this something that uh, is a cause that's dear to you, uh, the anti-fracking movement? It has become so. When I started out uh, in 2015 uh, representing uh, bodies in relation to fracking, I started out without um, any of my own views about the practice. And as a barrister, one has to always be very careful because you're there as an independent legal expert and your own views of what's right and wrong um, should really be parked and you should look at what the the legal perspective is. But as I've found out more and more about the nature of fracking, about its impact on the environment, about its impact on human beings living close to fracking sites, about its impact on climate change, uh, in my own personal view, um, I, I think it's a, a very dangerous thing indeed. And so um, I think that has probably uh, 
been a factor in uh, other organizations who are anti-fracking, um, knowing and trusting that I will do a, a good job for them. And yeah. so that's one of the reasons that I've been quite involved in anti-fracking uh, litigation in this country. This one particular case, Quadrilla, uh, how was that resolved, mm. the case against Quadrilla trying to prevent them from uh, beginning uh, the fracking business? In the UK. Mm, so it, it, this is an interesting example of how strategic environmental litigation, sometimes you can lose the battle, but you can win the war. And what happened in relation to Quadrilla, they were the first company who were given permission proper permission to frack in the United Kingdom. They'd fracked without permission, actually, um, earlier on, but they were given permission to frack in 2016-2017, and we um, launched a series of legal challenges to try and prevent that from happening. Um, we were successful um, partly in getting an injunction based on, or so, so an action to prevent them from going ahead, um, based on um, the emergency civil contingencies, so pr protecting people living close to the frack site. But then uh, they came back at us quite hard on that, and they were permitted to go ahead. So even though we kind of lost the, the legal arguments, what then happened um, was we kept uh, making sure that they were um, under significant regulation. We kept ensuring that they were prevented from taking any steps that went outside of the regulation. And in the end, it turned out that they couldn't do what they wanted to do without serious impact um, or, on seismicity. So essentially earthquakes taking place. Um, and as a result of that, there's now a moratorium on um, on Quadrilla doing any more or any any fracking company doing any fracking in the UK. Well, we could it's use... It's just a moratorium, though. It's not a ban. Well, so we, we're still vigilant. Well, listen, with that kind of success, we could use you over here fighting against Trump's war on the environment because they're fracking everywhere. Uh, they, they are opening up pipelines everywhere, and uh, it's just uh, unrelenting. It's, it's just happening every single day. They've uh, gutted the environment, Environmental Protection uh, Agency and um, things are bad. Oh, we need someone of mm. your abilities over here to fight against uh, Donald Trump, who I gather is not too popular uh, back home uh, in the UK. Uh, Donald Trump. No, quite. But I have to say, there are amazing people fighting, uh, in particular fracking in the U.S. And I I've know. been reading with great interest um, Eliza Griswold's book, Amity and Prosperity, which is about the, the fight against fracking in Pennsylvania. And it was absolutely fascinating to me to read about how um, against great odds, lawyers in the U.S. have been fighting fracking. I know. No, I'm, 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 we could just add, we need one more. Maybe that will put us over the top. No, you're right. There are some great attorneys, and I know them as well. So this is not a slight against them. I just would like to have as much as we can to fight against the onslaught on the environment by the Trump administration. Um, oh, that's it, very kind. And yeah. you are entirely right that it's going to be very important for the court's and for activists in the courts to take a strong role in uh, making protections that are being eroded, making protections work. We are talking with Estelle Dijon from uh, the great law firm uh, called, uh, it's a, it seems to be an activist law firm, Cornerstone 
barristers in London, uh, and uh, we met uh, during the attempts by uh, Stefani Marizzi to access emails between the uh, Crown Prosecutor Services and the Swedish prosecutors way back in uh, 2017. Uh, I think it was uh, November 11th. I had just received a subpoena to appear uh, before the House Intel Committee at that time, so I was a little crazy. Uh, I don't know if I shared that with you, but it's been a two-year nightmare since. It's, it's been a two-year nightmare since. I don't even want to get into it, but it's over for right now. Um, so I want to talk about that case in just one second to mm-hmm. Stefania Marizzi, because first of all, I want to know, I can see why she she went to you. How did she find you, uh, Stefani Marizzi? I mean, uh, who recommended? Because you're obviously the perfect person uh, for this assignment. Uh, how did you uh, cross paths cross? So that's that's very kind. Um, it's interesting the way in which these things work, isn't it? So um, Stefania was working closely with uh, a lawyer who um, was representing WikiLeaks. Um, at that stage, a lawyer called Jennifer Robinson. Yes. And, She's uh, great, Jennifer, by the way. Yes. She is great. Yeah, yes. And she, in fact, has been my junior in all the work that I've done um, w- on Stefania's behalf. So I've worked quite closely with her. Um, but at that stage, um, Jennifer was a solicitor and needed to um, get a barrister involved in order to assist Um, Jennifer had worked with one of the QCs in my chambers, Cornerstone Barristers, and so she asked him for a recommendation, and he recommended me. I see. Well, it was a good choice. uh, I know I I told her that we were going to be interviewing you today. She said, as soon as it's done, please send me the file. So she's very (laughs) excited that you're on. We'll get her in a couple of weeks. Uh, this, This case here, I mean, there were two, what I saw was, I think, the second, this is the second time you represented her, or was it the first time? There's one against the Metropolitan Police, and there's the one mm-hmm. against the CP, uh, CPS. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you, yes. uh, for, you know, you, you, I saw you in, at, in 2018, you were, you were on a panel, and you explained uh, how the FOIA law works in the UK. Can, mm-hmm. can you uh, kind of give us the background on that as you did then? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So all public bodies in the United Kingdom and public bodies, including bodies like the Crown Prosecution Service, which is essentially the the public prosecuting authority um, and the police services and many other bodies are subject to this legislation. And what it does is it gives any individual a right, a strong right to ask for information that is held by that public body to be provided to them. So if the body holds the information at that time, um, it should be provided, and that's the default. But of course, as with every law, there are exceptions. And what our law does is it recognizes a number of situations where it might be justified for the public body to refuse either to confirm or deny that it holds the information, um, or to say, yes, we hold that information but we can't provide it because, for example, to provide it would infringe the rights of somebody else, their personal privacy, or to provide it would um, prejudice law enforcement, or to provide it would prejudice international relations. And there are a number of such exemptions. 
And really the key fight that Stefania was facing in her freedom of information requests was that the public bodies turned around and said, no, we can rely on a number of exemptions to, to say that we're not providing you with this information and actually to say that they're not even going to admit whether they hold it or not. And we were fighting about whether those exemptions were properly applied or not. All right. Now, this is in both cases, uh, because I know she initiated this, the one that I witnessed uh, in the lower tier um, in 2015. Is that when you first uh, got involved? Is 2015. So this is, the, That's right. this is the, the one with the CPS, and then later was the Metropolitan Police Department? Yes, so the Metropolitan Police Department was a request made in 2017. The first one was the request to the Crown Prosecution Service in 2015. Well, let's go with that one first. Let's let's uh, recap mm-hmm. uh, the highlights of the the one against the I guess that's Scotland Yard, uh, the Met- Metropolitan Police. Um, mm-hmm. That case there. So uh, why don't you uh, recapitulate uh, what happened in that case? Okay. So, sorry, the the Crown Prosecution Service one, the first one, um, was uh, a request that Stefania made, which was focusing on the documentation, so the actual documents um, about Julian Assange that were held by the Crown Prosecution Service. Um, And in particular, any documents that were correspondence between them and the Swedish Prosecuting Authority, any documents between them and the U.S. Department of Justice um, or the U.S. State Department, and any documents between them and the Ecuadorian state or the Ecuadorian embassy. Um, And really what Stefania Marizzi had realized was that there was a lot that had been written about why Julian Assange was in the Ecuadorian embassy and what had happened, but that nobody had asked for primary material like this from the Crown Prosecution Service. So that's why she asked. And she got a full-on refusal from the Crown Prosecution Service in relation to the Swedish material to provide it and in relation to the U.S. material and the Ecuadorian material, even to um, say whether or confirm or deny whether they held that information at all. All right, stop right there. So, I mean, this was significant uh, in Back then, that was significant, and I know her. I mean, she's like Sisyphus. She'll keep going up that hill, you know, until she gets the rock over. Uh, You know, she is tireless and uh, determined. And so she was rebuffed, and then she went to you. So uh, continue on here. Yes, and you're right that it was very significant because you must remember that in 2014, um, that's when the uh, UK was fighting in the UN about whether um, there was uh, some type of detention that was happening in the Swedish embassy. That was also when the Swedish Court of Appeals was saying that the prosecutors were failing to um, pursue proper lines of investigation to move the case forward. So it was against that background that the request was made. Um, And when Stefania came to me and came to um, Jennifer Robinson for advice, um, we challenged the refusal um, on her behalf to, first of all, the information commissioner, who is um, the initial point of reference for all these types of complaints. 
And then we challenged um, the Information Commissioner's refusal um, to the first tier tribunal. And the way that our information law works is we have a specialist tribunal, which is both legal and um, has specialist information law experience. And the first tier tribunal can look fully at the um, whole case, taking witness evidence about whether any exemptions should apply or not. And uh, that was the, the process that you saw um, back in November 2017, was that we challenged, um, first of all, that the Swedish material um, should be withheld, and secondly, that the U.S. material, um, that the, the CPS should be uh, saying that it did hold that material or not. Um, and similarly for the Ecuadorian material. Well, that dragged on when you first filed uh, this uh, this complaint uh, was in 2015. So by the time I saw it, it was 2017. Uh, in fact, I was there in September, September 1st, 2017. It was supposed to begin then, and it was uh, it was two or three months later, November, a couple of months later before it actually mm. did get to that. That's the lower tier, and I should have asked you up front how this mm. has broken down the lower tier, the higher tier, and the Supreme Court and everything, but we can do that later. Uh, so mm. you got to that point there. You finally got into court, and I was there for mm. that. And so uh, walk us through uh, that process and, and uh, the result. Mm. So there were two key things, really. And the, the Swedish material was a bit different from the U.S. and Ecuadorian material. So I'll focus on the Swedish material first. And interestingly, what happened is that throughout um, the, the arguments from 2015 onwards, the Crown Prosecution Service was saying, no, this is confidential. We can't be disclosing material where a country has made an extradition request um, because it's confidential material and because it could uh, in some way prejudice the extradition process. But this was against the background where Stefania had made freedom of information requests under the Swedish legislation in Sweden, and the Swedish authorities had disclosed material to her. So we were pointing out all along that that just it can't be right for them to say for the Crown Prosecution Service to say that there was a confidentiality issue here. And in fact, what happened literally months before the hearing, so finally in August 2017, just before we were exchanging witness evidence, the Crown Prosecution Service disclosed about 330 pages of correspondence. That wasn't enough so for by her. by the time we got to the hearing, yes. no, it wasn't. No. And it was a very small aspect of the correspondence. But that was to try to mollify so you, right? To, was that basically trying oh, absolutely. to... absolutely. Yes. All right, continue. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's quite all right. Um, and you interrupt at any point, because as, as a lawyer, I know I can talk. Right. So <laughs> you just tell me when, when you have an extra question. Um, so yes, they disclosed this material. So by the time of the hearing, we were arguing about the redactions that had been made in the material that was disclosed. And we've been arguing that there must be more material that they held that should be disclosed. All right. Well, let me wait. Wait a second. Out. Let me stop for a minute. Mm -hmm. What was their motivation? Mm -hmm. What was their motivation? Is there, is there like a hidden hand here that told them not to do this, or did they act independently, autonomously, uh, the CPS? So my impression is that the CPS is acting independently. Although, of course, it's always difficult to to know. But my impression is that they're acting independently. But they are a public body that finds it very difficult to be open. It's not their natural position 
to be open. And so I think that likely what had happened was that their default position was to be closed and to refuse to provide the information, but that by the time we got really close to the hearing, that's when it gets a bit, you know, hot under the collar. And that's when your legal uh, representatives might be saying, you know, come on, you need to take a more sensible approach. And I think that's likely what happened, that they disclosed when they started to feel the heat of the hearing approaching. I see. All right. So continue where you were uh, before I interrupted you. Mm. So the interesting thing that emerged at the hearing, um, which was in that it was in the November was that um, it turns out that the uh, email account of the main prosecutor who had been corresponding with the Swedish authorities, had been advising the Swedish authorities on what to do, um, and had been updating the Swedish authorities. And I'll, I'll say a bit about that in a minute. But the main email account of that individual um, had been deleted. That's what emerged. And it was very surprising that it had been deleted. He had retired, but the CPS's policy was that that, that type of information should be maintained because it was essentially relating to an ongoing case. Uh, and so it was very surprising that that information had been deleted. That reminds me of Donald Trump not releasing his taxes because he's still under audit. Well, right. I wouldn't want to make that kind of comparison, uh, but um, you know, that's you the excuse he always will. he always gives. That excuse, I can't release my taxes because I'm still under audit mm. for the last thirty years. All right, I'm sorry to interrupt, but go ahead. Mm. No, no, that's quite all right. So, what did come out though in the information that was disclosed and that was unredacted was that the Crown Prosecution Service, over a number of years when the Swedish prosecutors were thinking about maybe coming to London and interviewing Julian Assange in the embassy, the Crown Prosecution Service was advising them that um, it, that was not the, uh, the preferred approach, that that wasn't a good approach or a strategic approach. And it was very um, surprising and noticeable um, that that was the advice that was being provided. I see. So that that means basically uh, what this was all about. That was their motive. They did not. They did not really want them to come to uh, the UK and interview Julian Assange uh, because uh, you know they could wrap up the investigation at that point and then toss it away, which they eventually did. Uh, actually, they did earlier that year. Uh, they uh, had um, mm. dumped the charges. Uh, not even charges. They were allegations. But I mean, the this mm. since. August of 2010, this has been such a albatross uh, PR-wise for Julian Assange. Uh, these, these initial mm. investigations, which were dropped immediately uh, by the first uh, Swedish prosecutor, and then it wasn't until a little later on that the second, Miss Marion Nye, uh, decided to pick it up. Mm. And so uh, in the meantime, he's getting all of this bad PR and it still re redounds on uh, today's uh, image of Julian Assange, uh, this entire mm. uh, smear campaign uh, that has, uh, you know, just stunk up, permeated uh, the, the, the entire uh, in, in environment. And, you know, there were people that said, well, this guy's this, this guy, you know, it was, was a total lie. Uh, and uh, he was uh, eventually, twice they dropped the uh, allegations, but I I'm sorry. So 
So what happened at the end of uh, this uh, process? You went in there, and then they came up with a decision. And by the way, who makes up the, this lower tier? Who, who chooses this, the, the lower tier that you, the body that you went in front of that I witnessed? Mm. Uh, so there's an independent process um, that uh, appoints judges and members who have expertise in the information law field. So there's a, a, a quite significant application process um, that the, the tribunal members have to go through in order to be appointed. Um, it's uh, unlike um, some systems, uh, it's certainly not an overtly politically appointed system, um, although some people suggest that you know if if you've um, led a life where you've been a thorn in the side of the government, that it might be a bit more difficult for you to be appointed. But they have appointed um, quite neutrally um, members to both the first tier tribunal and to the upper tribunal. Well, you know the way that it works is the first tier. Sorry, the first tier tribunal um, has both legally qualified and other experts, and then the upper tribunal is all judges who are looking just at points of law. I see. And so uh, you would say that they're dispassionate, those judges above are dispassionate when it comes to they can look at this case and not be influenced by uh, political considerations? Yes, I would say that. Okay, well, that's good. I mean, you know, I know you have to be careful because, uh, you you know, you have to work with these people, but I, I take you at your word. Here, uh, I can tell you mm. that every single judge is, uh, that in the state of New York is, is a political appointee. And, uh, of course, on mm. someone like you would never get on the Supreme Court in the U.S. And uh, someone that works, uh, a public defender, would never get on the Supreme Court of, of the U.S. Uh, so those are basically political appointees all the way up, even the appellate division here. And I really don't know... Uh, and I can't speak for for the UK. So, um, so we know th those were the judges. And so, what what was the um, the finding uh, which came out a few weeks mm. later? Mm. So, on the Swedish material, what the court found, what the what the tribunal found, was that um, sufficient material had been released, and that none of the redacted parts um, should be released um, unredacted. And they accepted that the material. Um, that was kept confidential should properly be confidential. I see. Um, on the American material, the argument was, was quite different. On the American and the Ecuadorian material, the argument was that you shouldn't be, um, the Crown Prosecution Service shouldn't be um, releasing all material or even confirming that it has any material because that might tip off an individual about whether an extradition request was or might have been made. Would and we had some problems with that as an argument, but that, that was essentially accepted by the tribunal. I see. And so were you able to get the uh, communications between the U.S. And, and the U.K. prosecutors? We were not. You were not. We right. appealed. No, we were not. We appealed to the upper tribunal. Um, and the appeal points were all quite technical legal points. Um, we made some headway um, in that the Crown Prosecution Service kept emphasizing, well, things are very different now. You know, by the time of our appeal, um, Julian Assange was out of the embassy. It was clear that America had made an extradition request. So they kept emphasizing, oh, things are quite different now. 
But on the technical legal points of appeal, um, we were not successful. Well, they certainly... as a result of the emphasis that the Crown Prosecution Service placed on the fact that things are very different now, um, Stefania in um, December of this year um, made a, ne- a second Freedom of Information request to the Crown Prosecution Service. I see. And that's still in litigation? And so what that, that is potentially new litigation. So what she has said is, well... You've told us that things are very different now. You've told us that new um, that this is a new situation. So now you must release the correspondence, if there's any, with the U.S. Um, State Department and the Department of Justice. And she's also um, asked the Crown Prosecution Service um, to say when, why, and how the emails um, were deleted of the main lawyer that was dealing with the case. Boy. And just recently, the, the Crown Prosecution Service has come back and said that they are likely to refuse, but they've um, triggered a provision that allows them some more time to decide whether they're going to do that or not. Well, I must tell you this, that the perception here is, and uh, a lot of uh, individuals like uh, uh, John Pilger and uh, Craig Murray and many others think that the Crown Prosecutor Services, CPS, is under the thumb of the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice. Now, that may, that may not be your opinion, but uh, there's a perception there. Uh, because they held their cards close to their vest, and we never found out if we, I mean, there was a pending uh, investigation and probably a a pending um, uh, a warrant for extradition uh, happening, and they didn't Mm. want that to get out because I think it might have, Mm. uh, uh, you know, stirred up some uh, public uh, outrage uh, at the time. So everyone, but Julian knew it though. Julian always said that they were going to go in there and then they had the change of government. Uh, and uh, eventually, I mean, every every single legal door that he's walked into, there has been some kind of barrier. This is like one of the, like there's some light, there has been some light uh, at the end of the tunnel uh, looking at what you accomplished there. I mean, a little, because everything else, everything else. And in fact, I'm going to play something here. I want you to comment on this. Uh, This took place in early, um, uh, I think, uh, 2017. This is from... uh, the UN Working Group on uh, Arbitrary de- Detention. Do we have that, uh, Frank? Mm-hmm. All right, can you listen to this and then on the other side comment? Mm-hmm. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has been arbitrarily detained by Sweden and the United Kingdom since his arrest in London on 7 December 2010 as a result of the legal action taken against him by both governments the expert panel call on the Swedish and British authorities to end Mr. Assange's deprivation of liberty. I think the recommendation is quite clear. Respect his physical integrity and freedom of movement and afford him the right to compensation. Oh, there you go. So that's Christoph, uh, I think, Pestro, uh, who was on that uh, working uh, group panel. Uh, and you would think, there you go, you're a nation of laws, right? The UK is a nation of laws. Why didn't they abide by this decision uh, by the uh, UN? I mean, they 
for the previous 20, 30 years, they, they always did, but not in this case. And of course, in the, in the Chagos mm-hmm. Island uh, case. But uh, what, is, what is your response to that? Why didn't they? Mm, it was very, very disappointing um, to those of us in the UK uh, legal system who really uh, have a respect for the rule of law and in particular a respect for the international rule of law and for international human rights. Um, the United Kingdom's response was very disappointing. Um, it was plain that uh, essentially a, um, a, a very narrow and um, political response was taken um, where there was a refusal to abide by the decision. And lots of times a government can disagree with the legal reasoning, can think that the lawyers have got things wrong or the decision makers have got things wrong. But if you accept the rule of law, you abide by the decision or you appeal. And it was it was disappointing it was dis- um, that the government responded in the way that they did. Well, he, like I said, has uh, he, he reminds me, like I said, of Studio 54 in New York City. Uh, which was a place for celebrities uh, back in the 70s. Uh, and uh, they wouldn't allow African-Americans to go in there under any circumstances. They always found an excuse. I mean, I remember a guy going up there and basically saying, uh, uh, here's my ID, gave him his driver's license. And the doorman said, what else you got? All right, here's my birth certificate. What else you got? Uh, here's my passport. What else you got? Here's my purple heart. What else you got? And that guy was not getting in. And that seems to be uh, what Julian Assange is going through right now. No matter what, they want him extradited. I mean, take a look at the conditions. I mean, why is he in, does that startle you or disturb you that he is uh, right now inside Belmorsh prison awaiting uh, extradition or, or the hearing anyway, and possible extradition inside this horrible medieval dungeon uh, and not able to spend time with his lawyers. What's the response, not only by you, but the, the legal community that, that you uh, work with? Mm. So I must preface this by saying I'm not a criminal lawyer. I know that. So I, know. I don't work day in, day out in the criminal courts. But anybody who practices in the UK knows that Belmarsh is a prison that is maximum security and that is designed in particular um, for terrorists or very high-risk criminals. And it is surprising uh, and disconcerting uh, that that is where Julian Assange is being held because um, the first-tier tribunal and many other bodies recognize that WikiLeaks um, is a media organization and that Julian Assange uh, is a journalist. And I cannot really see the basis on which um, he justifiably has uh, been held in Belmarsh rather than some other prison, um, which is uh, more apt for an individual uh, who has uh, not committed any uh, crime um, and to be held um, pending extradition. Well, you know, he's, he uh, went into that uh, embassy, uh, and, uh, I think, June 12, 2012, and uh, he skipped bail. When he finally was dragged out of there, uh, you would think that the whole uh, bail situation would have been obviated by the fact that he was never charged. So the, the bail was based on 
uh, allegations from the Swedes, and they and, and that just disappeared. So, what was the reason for them to keep them uh, on, on a bail charge or to arrest them on a bail charge and give them such a severe sentence? Did you find that as disquieting as well? Well. You've you've got to differentiate, I think, between the Swedish proceedings and the proceedings in the United Kingdom. I mean, if you if you're if you're out on bail, you're out on bail, and if you skip bail, you skip bail. Whether in the end um, the the charges are are withdrawn or or, or not, right. and so I I can see legally why it was entirely sound um, that there was uh, an issue about skipping bail. Um, what is less clear to me is why that has resulted in a sentence uh, in relation to Belmarsh Prison. But as I say, I'm not a criminal lawyer. Um, there may well be a sensible reason for that. But it, it seems quite stark um, that that's where he's being held. Yes, I, uh, I agree. I, I, last week I was saying that, that Rudolf Hess had a better, a better living uh, situation at the Spandau Prison after the war. Um, let's, uh, get back to Stefania, the other case, uh, with the Metropolitan Police. We didn't talk about that. So can you, uh, tell us about, mm. uh, what happened there? Mm, I can. And from the perspective of, uh, journalism and journalistic integrity, I think this case and what has, um, come out as a result of the freedom of information requests is, um, as worrying um, as the material that has come out in relation to the first request. So this second request was um, made to the Metropolitan Police. Um, and what Stefania Marizzi asked was for any correspondence between the United States Department of Justice and the Metropolitan Police in relation to three named individuals, all of whom um, worked with WikiLeaks. Um, the first is Kristen Fraffenson, who was the WikiLeaks spokesperson um, and a, an editor of WikiLeaks. The second is Sarah Harrison, who was a WikiLeaks investigative editor. And the third is Joseph Farrell, um, who's a WikiLeaks section editor. And of course, this request was made against the background um, of uh, information coming out that the Department of Justice um, had uh, obtained uh, information from Google in the U.S. Um, about uh, these individuals. And so uh, what Stefania Marizzi wanted to investigate was whether the U.K. authorities had been approached or any material about these individuals had been provided to the U.S. Department of Justice. I see. And so? And the... The response from the Metropolitan Police was to refuse to confirm or deny whether any information was held. And the basis of the refusal was that um, this information that was being requested by Stefania Marizzi was the personal information of the three named individuals. And so it would be a breach of their privacy to provide the information to Stefania. And so what Stefania did was to get... Um, a written consent from each of those individuals to say they were happy for the information to be released to her. What year was this, by the uh, way? Can the you tell us just the date? So this was all this was all in 2017 okay. and 2018. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, that's okay. And so what um, the Metropolitan Police then says was they deployed a, a legal argument and they said, no, no, even though there's consent from these individuals, 
we're still going to refuse to confirm or deny because you can't use freedom of information legislation to get round uh, data protection legislation in this way because freedom of information means releasing information to the whole world, not just to Stefania Marizzi. And we litigated that, we challenged that, we appealed to the first tier tribunal um, and the first tier tribunal upheld the appeal and ordered the Metropolitan Police to confirm or deny whether it held the information. And they did. They confirmed it. And they did. They confirmed it. They confirmed. It. They confirmed in January this year, they confirmed that they hold information that falls within the request. So that means that they hold information about these three journalists um, in correspondence with the U.S. Department uh, of Justice and the U.S. State Department. Wow. But the Metropolitan Police have um, made a further response, and they've said, we're not going to release any of the information to you. And they've relied on some very worrying exemptions. In particular, they've relied on national security. Always. And they've relied on law enforcement. And in particular, on the law enforcement side, they've relied on the threat of terrorism undermining law enforcement and wow. national security. Wow. I thought that was a ruse just used here. So uh, that uh, <laughs> that is not a good reason. So that's where it is right now because of... Uh, that's where it is. Right now. Are, are right you appealing now. that? Or? So we are appealing that. And it's important to recognize the that the Metropolitan Police, in the first case, acknowledged that these three individuals are journalists. And their own witness acknowledged that they're journalists. But still the Metropolitan Police is relying on um, some kind of general threat of terrorism and preventing terrorist or extremist attacks to refuse to provide the information. And so um, Stefania, with my assistance and the assistance of Jennifer Robinson, has appealed against that to the Information Commissioner, which is the first step. And we are awaiting the response of the commissioner. Well, but this has been so significant a development. The police relying on um, a, a, a terrorism and national security to refuse to release this information that the National Union of Journalists here in the United Kingdom um, has made a statement um, of their concern about this case. Um, and calling on the Metropolitan Police to release the information. Well, I must tell you that, you know, all the dark spots in, in Julian's uh, legal battles, uh, you and Stefania have provided uh, some, some bright moments, and both uh, in the, uh, the FOIA request and uh, the, uh, this case with the Metropolitan Police. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll, we'll get that information, but it is very dangerous that they rely on national security. That seems to cover everything, you know, national security. You just invoke that and gives you the rationale to withhold information that the public has a right to know. Um, let's see. Any Oh, and plus, I think Stefani, the next case she, she is going to uh, file is against Undercover Global for the uh, spying uh, that intensive spying by Undercover Global 
on the Ecuadorian embassy, uh, particularly between 2000, uh, June of 2017 through uh, April 2018, where I was there twice. So they videotaped everybody, but that's not something we're going to talk about today, unless you're involved in that. Um, I'm, it's not something that I can talk about today. Okay. Right. Um, what I can say in relation to Stefania is that, uh, and, and this is one of the reasons that I have the deepest of respect for her as a journalist and, and an amazing client, is that she has been running these legal battles entirely herself. She has not been funded by the publications that she writes for. She has had um, either to obtain um, funding to fund this litigation um, or those who have been representing her have done so um, for reduced fees or pro bono. And this is the situation that she faces again with the further challenges that she's making in particular to the Metropolitan Police, that she's self-funding all of this and she's having to go and find funding. And it's a testament to her character and her stamina um, that this um, fight goes on. She's a woman of uh, the utmost integrity and commitment and one of the finest uh, uh, investigative journalists uh, on the planet today. And uh, she's a great role model. Stefania Morizzi from La Repubblica. And I'm, I'm so glad you two are working together. Uh, and it was such a pleasure um, meeting you in, uh, in London. And um, I hope you are back on the show with some good tidings uh, in the near future. Uh, but uh, we, we're running out of time here, and um, it, it went by quickly. That was a quick hour. It just like flew by. I can't believe it. And I had so many more questions here to ask you, but we're going we're gonna to get you back on, all right? And you're going to have some good news for us, and we're going to take you out right now with little uh, Nina Simone. Oh, by the way, if people want to reach you, they just look up cornerstonebarristers.com? That's correct. Okay. All right. So cornerstonebarristers.com. Uh, thank you, Estelle. By the way, my mother's name was Estelle, uh, is Estelle, the late uh, Estelle Credico. It's a <laughs> beautiful name. All right. Estelle uh, Dahon, thank you very much uh, once again, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. All right.
Okay, that was Nina Simone, Summertime. And once again, I want to thank Estelle DeHone uh, for uh, making this special appearance. Boy, she was great. Really was. Can't wait to get her back. All right, so um, let's see what else is happening. This week on Thursday uh, at uh, 4.30 p.m. in New York City, there will be a uh, – it's a weekly vigil, by the way, in front of um, – Grand Central, and everyone's meeting before that at the information uh, tower inside Grand Central. So if you're in town uh, on Thursdays at 4 o'clock, 4.15, 4.30, go by the information clock there inside Grand Central. All right, so uh, now we did not have in our studio today our uh, kind of who's become our co-host, uh, and that's Nathan Fuller from the uh, Courage Foundation. Nathan, and do we have you? Hey there. How's hey. it going, Randy? All right. Well, we missed you today, and you missed a very interesting uh, interview, but I know you're busy. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to uh, get an update of what's happening, all things Julian Assange uh, legally, uh, you know, where it is now from last week. Sure. So he returned to court at Westminster Magistrates Court today in London and was, uh, by all accounts of those there, looking in physically a little bit better shape than he had before. Um, he was in a suit and was more clean-shaven than he had been before. But the main issue of the hearing today was about legal access, Assange's access to his lawyers and therefore to his defense. And so he's been denied that access that is essential to defending his own case in which he needs to sign off on his own legal arguments. Um, and so there was a a delay today, and Barrister Gareth Pierce was able to have a little bit of time with Assange to go over some defense evidence and arguments, but um, but they're really being set back. Uh, and she she said uh, that the defense has been set back in their timetable enormously, and so that's pretty worrying as far as Assange being able to get a fair trial come February. February, the date is still February twenty fourth or twenty fifth, twenty fifth. Uh, the uh, starts the February twenty fourth. It was initially set for five days. Now looks like it'll be at least two weeks, um, and potentially longer. But we'll hear more about that on January twenty third, when Assange has another case, case management hearing, and that will finalize the uh, the court. Janu- January twenty third. So people who are listening to this in London, uh, please. Uh, uh, get your uh, tush over uh, to uh, the magistrate's court and uh, show your support of Julian Assange. Uh, anything else uh, you want to add to that, uh, Nathan? just want to say we're finalizing uh, a few more panel events uh, here in the U.S. We have events coming up in uh, D.C., L.A., and New York. And I can't announce the details just yet, but uh, check out defend.wikileaks.org and check out Courage at Courage Found on Twitter. Uh, and we'll be keeping you updated as, as those events are confirmed and then we can announce them. All right. Well, next week you'll be uh, on with us and uh, we'll maybe we'll have something more concrete exactly when and where. But uh, I'm aware of uh, some pending uh, events and uh, this is all good. I, I think that uh, the support for Julian is growing uh, both in the legal community and the public uh, arena, and uh, certainly uh, in the hopefully even more so uh, with journalism. There were 1,000 journalists so far, last time I looked, who signed on uh, to that petition to free Julian Assange. Uh, Nathan? Right. uh, Really good to see you. 
the uh, increasing support and people really realizing how dangerous these indictments are. Yes, absolutely. Listen, we're going to get you in the studio next week. I want you in the studio next week, all right? So uh, uh, I'm not sure who we're going to have on, but uh, we'll, it'll be somebody special, and, and uh, we'll be talking to you all right, soon. Okay, thanks a lot uh, from the Courage Foundation, the okay. Executive Director, Nathan Fuller, and uh, you can find him uh, on Twitter, Courage Found, F-O-U-N, at Courage Found. All right, so that was Nathan. Uh, folks, I want to thank you all. Uh, I want to thank uh, primarily here in this uh, great studio, the studios of uh, NYC Podcasting, nycpodcasting.com. Uh, like I said, this thing went smoothly today. As usual, the uh, engineers here are, are really top-notch, and uh, the you feel good. I mean, I never felt this good in, in, in when I was working at uh, another radio station in the city or anywhere. This is they really make you feel at home here, and uh, it's it's like I said, it's the ideal place to do a audio or video podcasting. They do it all here. That's nycpodcasting.com. I also want to thank uh, Anonymous Scandinavia for sending all the sound files to Frank and uh, Frank the engineer, who's brilliant. And uh, I also want to thank uh, Eric, uh, who is the uh, manager here at nycpodcasting.com. And uh, to, of course, uh, over there at Covert Action Magazine, uh, Covert Action Magazine, where we uh, are uh, right now exclusively uh, uh, showcasing uh, this uh, series, Assange's Countdown to Freedom. All right, that's it. I'm Randy Credico, you know, Stefani Marizzi. Beautiful woman. She wears black a lot. You know, like a lot of my uh, friends, they wear black a lot. Everybody in this studio wears black. So this is a tribute to you. This is an acknowledgement to you, Stefania, and all the engineers here. Here's a little Johnny Cash. Well, you wonder why I always dress in black. Why you never see bright colors on my back And why does my appearance seem to have a somber tone Well, there's a reason for the things that I have on I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down Living in the hopeless, hungry side of town I wear it for the prisoner who has long paid for his crime But is there because he's a victim of the time I wear the black for those who've never read Or listen to the words that Jesus said About the road to happiness through love and charity Why you think he's talking straight to you and me Mighty fine, I do suppose In our streak of lightning cars and fancy clothes But just so we're reminded of the ones who are held back Up front there ought to be a man in black I wear it for the sick and lonely old For the reckless ones whose bad trip left them cold Black and mourning for the lives that could have been Each week we lose a hundred fine young men And I wear it for the thousand 
hundred thousand who have died Believing that we all were on their side Well, there's things that never will be right, I know And things need changing everywhere you go But till we start to make a move To make a few things right You'll never see me wear a suit of white Till things are brighter, I'm the man in black. 